0: Welcome to our second season of Stratford Mail, a smart little history podcast from Stratford Hall Historic Preserve, where the voices of American history still speak. Find us online at stratfordmail.org and at stratfordhall.org. We're so glad you're back and we hope you'll share Stratford Mail with a friend or colleague. Here now is our Director of Research, Dr. Gordon Blaine Steffi.
1: This month, Stratford Mail commemorates Black History Month with a trio of partial portraits of black women and men whose diverse experiences under the slavery system raise a window on models of resistance and resilience. Our first portrait highlights both the potentials and pitfalls of physical archives for writing history. In the case of historically underrecognized communities, the silences of archives can be imposing, and yet vulnerable to exception. In this instance, a single undated letter, fragmentary and damaged, in parts, unreadable. But for this one letter, written in the hand of Colonel Philip Ludwell Lee of Stratford, we would have no inkling of the man Colonel Phil enslaved, a man named Sawney who doesn't otherwise appear in the account books of Stratford or its inventories of the enslaved. From the letter, we know that Sonny belonged to the House staff, performing a wide range of tasks attuned to the daily rhythms of the Great House and to the activities of Colonel Phil himself. The letter is addressed to Phil's sister, Hannah Corbin, at nearby Pecatone Plantation, to which Phil believes Sawney fled to duck the consequences of what Phil terms egregious behavior. According to Phil, Sonny spoke very provokingly after Phil read him the riot act for turning up in dirty and disheveled clothes to wait on the family at supper. Moreover, complained Phil, When he is waiting, he will, behind your back, drink the liquor and eat meat out of the dishes he carries from the dairy, though he has his regular meals, much as he can eat, and will not do one thing to help the rest when out of your sight. Phil admits to physically punishing Sonny for past grievances, But not. Above twice. And then. Very gently. Phil also congratulates himself for indulging Sonny's request not to relocate an enslaved woman named Pat, or Patty, to an outlying quarter despite her unspecified misconduct. In Phil's mixed-up world, Sonny's favorable treatment, which included better clothing, a 10-pound sterling allowance annually, and the opportunity to attend dances, had been met with ingratitude. Phil asks Sister Hannah, to whom Sonny has presumably fled, to punish and return Sonny to Stratford. Did she do so? There are many unknowns here. Sonny does not appear in the 1776 probate inventory conducted after Phil's death in 1775. Did Phil mistake Sonny's destination? Did he turn up at Pecatone, as Phil assumed, perhaps to seek the assertive Hannah's intercession with Phil on his behalf? Was he returned to Stratford and sold away? Or did he bypass Pecatone for New Vista's and other horizons. Wherever Sonny laid his head at last, he left behind a record of ordinary resistance. His refusals to help except under direct supervision, to conform to expectations about what he wore and how he wore it, to restrict what he ate and drank to what was explicitly provided for him, and to police his speech for the comfort of his enslavers, All these refusals helped Sawney to claw back some sense of autonomy, even as they disrupted the smooth operation of the unjust system that aimed to drain him of will. To risk violent punishment with this mix of covert and face-to-face defiance testified to the goodness of freedom. And in those moments, Sawney communed with freedom just as surely as the white patriots who contended for their rights against a grasping empire. Even Colonel Phil detected freedom in Sawney's defiance, explaining in his letter to Hannah, He should not be master. Our second portrait opens in D.C.'s historic neighborhood of Georgetown, specifically in Holyrood Cemetery, where a tomb marble commemorates the death of Henrietta Steptoe on June 2, 1850. Henrietta was born into slavery at Stratford, where she appears as three-year-old Henny in a 1782 inventory of enslaved persons belonging to the estate of the late Colonel Philip Ludwell Lee. In the division of Colonel Phil's estate, Henrietta was allotted to Phil's youngest daughter, Flora Lee, and likely left Stratford in 1785 when Flora relocated to a new home on the corner of Washington and Orinoco streets in Alexandria. In 1788, Flora married her first cousin, Ludwell Lee, second son of Richard Henry Lee, and they moved into John Mill's old manor atop Shooter's Hill in Alexandria, where Henrietta surely lived and labored for more than a decade. Fairfax County minute books record Ludwell Lee's manumission of Henrietta and two others, likely her children, in 1801, at which time she likely moved to Georgetown, where the mortality books of coffin maker William King note that Henrietta buried an unnamed child in December of 1805. Happier days followed in June 1807 when Henrietta offered her daughter Mary Ann for baptism at Holy Trinity Catholic Church, her older daughter Rebecca Steptoe Lee, standing godmother. As an aside, an 1839 portrait of Henrietta's daughter Mary Ann by James Alexander Simpson has recently been promised to the Baltimore Museum of Art. In its announcement of the portrait's acquisition, the BMA notes that the portrait embodies complex narratives around race, identity, family, and regional history. To understand why that's so, we turn to Certificate of Freedom number 1722, recorded in the very year that Marianne sits for Simpson, and attesting to the free Black status of Henrietta and her now 30-something-year-old daughter, Marianne Tritt. Archivist Dorothy S. Provine records that both women are light-colored and the 1840 census will identify Henrietta as mulatto eldest daughter, Rebecca, is variously identified as mulatto and white in official records. Here then are some of those complex narratives to which the b m a referred and which we hope will be explored when the portrait reaches the exhibition floor. The Georgetown directory of eighteen thirty registers a Henrietta Stepto living on First Street opposite the Catholic Church where Marianne had been baptized. It was a small brick home for which she was assessed two dollars and seventy five cents in tax in eighteen twenty eight affordable on the income she earned as a midwife. In his 1895 memoir on 40-odd years of medical practice in the District of Columbia, Dr. Samuel Busey bemoaned the initial rarity of trained obstetric nurses, remarking that The nurses on the market belonged to a class of old grannies, mostly of the colored race. The undertow of contempt here is characteristic of attempts made by the white medical establishment to eliminate midwifery in the late 19th century, though midwives or old grannies remained a major resource of obstetric care and community cohesion, especially in African-American communities, into the mid-20th century. Dr. Busey goes on to say, Aunt Phyllis and Henrietta Steptoe, had risen to the dignity of Madame La Chapelle, and their vernacular and oracular dispensations were implicitly believed and accepted as the rule of conduct in the lying-in chamber of high life. To suggest that Henrietta was received on par with Marie-Louise La Chapelle, the mother of modern obstetrics and head obstetrician at public hospital Hotel Dieu in Paris, is to say that Henrietta was taken to be a medical professional of the highest order. Not necessarily by Dr. Busey, but certainly by her clients. At the same time, the comparison to the happy, faithful slave character Aunt Phyllis from the anti-Tom pro-slavery novel Aunt Phyllis's Cabin or Southern Life as it is is meant to underline, just in case you missed it, that Henrietta was black. And to imply that her skill set composed of time-honored West African practices and traditions handed down and refined in the context of plantation slavery was inferior to Dr. Busey's training even if the upper crust of Georgetown society preferred to be attended by Henrietta. When Henrietta died at age 71, mourners gathered at her daughter Rebecca's home to pay their respects. Her tomb marble in Holyrood Cemetery reads,
2: Peace to thy soul eternal be thine, and light celestial now upon thee shine. And if thy prayer now be heard above, who bless thy children with a mother's love,
1: our final partial portrait dates to November 1888, and it requires us to remember one of the most sadistic features of the slavery system the separation of families. Families were devastated as spouses, siblings, parents, and children were sold apart from one another across slaveholding states. Laws and norms encouraging and enforcing widespread illiteracy meant that the enslaved and newly freed often lacked a basic means of communicating with those from whom they had been separated. As the anti-slavery newspaper Signal of Liberty put it, The interchange of soul by writing is among the blessings denied the poor bondman. If literacy thrummed with the power of the taboo before emancipation, it resonated with practicality afterward, especially as a means for folks to rebuild broken families. On November 1st, 1888, Mrs. Louisa Thomas of Chattanooga wrote a Dear Editor letter for the Lost Friends column in the New Orleans paper, The Southern Christian Advocate. Louisa likely paid the non-subscriber fee of 50 cents to publish her letter. The Lost Friends column was a community-driven measure to repair broken families in the absence of a government will to do so, despite the creation of the under-resourced Freedmen's Bureau in 1865. The column's header urged pastors to Please, read the requests published below from the pulpits. This was a brilliant use of the social networks of parishioners and the interconnection of churches to reconnect lost friends. The prerogative of enslavers to name and rename people and the small pool of commonplace names in circulation made reconnection especially difficult. Details were essential And Louisa Thomas packs a dense biography into her letter.
2: Dear Editor, I wish to inquire for my father and two sisters, Dulcie and Fanny Robinson. My father is Henry Ford Brown. When I last heard from my father, he was in St. Louis. And the last time I heard from my sisters, they were in New Orleans. During the war, I was between 16 and 17 years of age. I went from St. Louis to Washington, D.C. with Richard Bland Lee. I lived on C Street and then moved to number 477, 7th Street. I was sold in 1863 to Bob Davis, an Negro trader, and taken to Richmond. I left Richmond when Bob Davis sold me to Will Brooks, who tucked 25 of us in a drove. My first husband was George Brown. The first time I heard from my father, Chattanooga was surrounded by water, and I could not send a dispatch, but I have been writing ever since, and have never received any answer, and the letters have never come back. I think somebody gets them. Direct letters to Mrs. Louisa Thomas, 410 McCallie Avenue, Chattanooga.
1: Louisa was enslaved to Richard Bland Lee Jr., first cousin to Stratford-born Robert E. Lee, whom Richard Jr. followed from the United States Army into the Confederate Army of the Potomac. Louisa likely spent significant time in St. Louis, where she places her father before 1859, when Richard Jr. brought her east to D.C. There she lived and labored at 477th Street, before she was sold to a Richmond-based slave trader in 1863, and then sold south. She doesn't say where. November 1888 finds her living in Chattanooga, Tennessee in her early 40s, on her second marriage, and thinking about her father Henry and sisters Dilsey and Fanny, from whom she had been separated, Louisa last heard from her father when water surrounded Chattanooga, disabling telegraph lines and preventing outgoing mail. She's referring here to the March 1867 flood, the largest in Chattanooga's history, when the Tennessee River crested 28 feet above flood stage. At the time of her Lost Friends post, Louisa hadn't heard from her father in 20 years, despite writing ever since. There is indeed a power and agency in literacy but not necessarily the power of happy endings. We do not know whether Louisa found her family again, and we know nothing else of Louisa's life adventures in the era of Reconstruction and beyond. If you have information that might help to enrich and elevate the stories of Sawney, Henrietta Steptoe and her children, or Louisa Thomas, please send your mail to arthurlee at stratfordmail.org. From Stratford Hall Historic Preserve in Westmoreland County, Virginia, I'm Dr. Gordon Blamestaffi.
0: Dear listeners, wouldn't you like to do more than just listen? Become an active participant with Stratford Hall in the production of new and exciting programs like Stratford Mail. Sponsor an episode or more of Stratford Mail by getting in touch with us at www.stratfordhall.org stroke support Stratford and please don't forget to follow Stratford Mail and share it with someone you love, someone
1: you know. They'll be so happy you did.